Hi, my name is Kimberly Haven, and I'm the Executive Director of Reproductive Justice Inside and for Reproductive Justice Maryland. And Femtech to me is a voice for caring for women who people don't think about, and that's our incarcerated population. Femtech to me is representing a commitment to dignity, to humanity for our incarcerated women and girls and lending a voice and a power to reproductive health care, reproductive justice, and reproductive access. And that's what Femtech is to me. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus Podcast, brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health market research and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. Before we get into today's episode, I'm so excited to announce the release of the 2022 Femtech Landscape Report available right now at femhealthinsights.com. This year's report includes an in-depth analysis of the 2022 femtech market, including market size, growth trends, and key players. You'll also get an overview of the investment activity, including funding trends and notable deals. If you're an entrepreneur, an investor, work in an R&D or business development, and you're a professional interested in how you can learn more about the femtech industry, you will not want to miss this essential guide to the latest trends and opportunities in the field. So come and get it, y'all. It's free. Head over to our website, www.femhealthinsights.com and download your copy today. In today's episode, I interview Kimberly Haven, Executive Director of Reproductive Justice Inside. Kimberly is a powerful voice and force in the social justice movement. She is uniquely familiar with the criminal justice system because of her own incarceration and has the unique distinction of being the only formerly incarcerated woman in Maryland who has written and gotten passed into law several pieces of legislation. So essentially, she's a badass. Reproductive Justice Inside is the go-to organization in Maryland for incarcerated women who need reproductive health care. Their mission is to support and protect reproductive freedom of incarcerated individuals as a fundamental right. In this interview, we discuss access to menstrual products whilst incarcerated, what happens if your pregnant woman goes to prison, and the complete exclusion of female health from the prison system. This is a great opportunity to learn more about the experiences of systems-involved women. You can learn more and get involved by emailing Kim directly at Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-Y, at ReproductiveJusticeInside.org. Hey, Kim. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany. Thanks so much for having me today. It is very exciting to have you, that you are covering a topic we have not covered yet, and it is so important, and it is probably one of the areas I know the least amount about, and so I'm really excited to learn today. Um, I have a feeling that I'm going to get some feelings, I'm going to get emotional, get angry, get whatever, but you know, as we do on the show, which is we uncover the inequalities, but then we look for the opportunities, and I'm so grateful to be speaking with you 
who's leading the opportunity here. So I'm really excited, Kim, for for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I love being able to talk about the work that I do, but I also like being able to talk about why it's important and, you know, dispelling myths, but also um, creating an understanding of not just the issue, but the, the population that I advocate on behalf of. Yep. Well, let's first dive into your personal background, which I know actually has a whole lot to do with what you're working on. So tell us a little bit about who Kim is, where you're from, and you know what what experience did you have that led you to, to working on this? Um, great question and great way to start. Um, I am the executive director of Reproductive Justice Inside, and we actually have a couple of subsidiary projects underneath Reproductive Justice Inside. But the long and short of my answer is really I do what I do because of the things that I experienced during my own incarceration, the things that I saw, the things that I know are still happening, and right is right, wrong is wrong. And so really that's like the the short answer. So I got involved with this space, again, because of my own incarceration, but there were some issues that made me really focus I still work on issues of conditions of confinement and mass incarceration and women and all of that. But repro um, is an area that not a lot of people think about when they think about the incarcerated population and also what the reproductive lifespan is of an incarcerated individual. And so that's where RJI was kind of formed. That's what we've been focusing on. And that is what, again, is one of those issues that People, I don't think that it's people don't care, although there are a large number of that, but I think it's more of people aren't aware and they don't think about the people that we incarcerate. And what does that look like, particularly when it comes to repro health? Yeah. I mean, I've, I'm definitely following that bucket. Um, I occasionally think of, you know, the, uh, you know, the, experience of the menstruator who is experiencing homelessness or, you know, but, or incarcerated, but I really don't know who to talk to or ask questions to. So when you came across my, uh, my Rolodex, I was like, yes, we need her on the show. Cause I have a lot of questions and I don't know who to ask. So you know, my, my first question, and you've been so, you know, vulnerable and authentic, both in your organization and just personally. And so really excited to hear the story, but what was your experience of reproductive health while incarcerated? So I, um, I like to say, and actually I, this sounds stupid, but like I've been to prison a couple of times. That's a whole other story for a whole other podcast, (laughs) but I was what made me really embrace the need for working in the repro space was that I was uh, a breast cancer. Um, I wasn't even a survivor at that point. I was in chemo induced menopause. Uh-huh. So I went back to prison. I should not have had any bleeding incidents at all. And instead, I had three. I had three major, like I was hemorrhaging kind of bleeding incidents. And so every time I went, they were just like, well, here, like, you know, put pads on. And if you need extra pads. And then I realized how hard it was to get pads and the things that women had to do in order to just meet the most basic hygiene needs that every single woman goes through every month for an entire lifetime. Right. And so when I came home, it was, this is a huge problem. And this was at the very beginning of when people were really starting to look at menstrual dignity. And we became the fifth state in the country to pass our menstrual hygiene laws. And it was because of 
what we had to do while I was inside. There are videos of me online showing how I made, and every time I tell the story, I do this, how I made homemade tampons. And when you make homemade tampons out of sanitary pads that are also like literally, you know, a quarter of an inch thick, if they're that, um, all of those little fibers are going everywhere. And those little fibers went up inside of me. So when I came home, not only did I have to address the fact that I had three hemorrhaging incidents, but I ended up having to have an emergency hysterectomy because of toxic shock syndrome from all of those little fibers. That were just stuck up in there, like a little hay nest. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't enough that I had to lose the boobs. Then I had to lose everything else, you know, south of the boobs. So that was a problem. And so we wrote the, um, the bill. And what was amazing to me was that when I was talking to legislators, they were, Kim, can't, this can't be a problem. Please tell me this isn't a problem. And our warden of our state prison was calling us and saying, we can't get these products. Can you help us out? So for an entire summer, the then executive director of um, NARAL at that time, and I, every time we went speaking somewhere, instead of don't pay us, just do a sanitary product drive. And we were running products up and down the road. The problem with that, I just want to kind of digress a little bit, was that, and I have really strong feelings both ways about this. So it's not the community's job to provide the most basic of sanitary products for our incarcerated population, right? So there's a part of me that wants to go, oh, hell no. If they're in your care custody and control, you have to, if you have to provide this and if you can't let them go, that was like my argument. The problem is that doesn't alleviate the need. They still don't have the products that they need, which is hurting the very people that I'm advocating for. Mm -hmm. So it's a very difficult double-edged sword. So we wrote the bill. We came, like I said, we became the fifth state in the country to do it. And we thought everything was fine. And then a reporter from the Washington Post said, yeah, no, we're hearing that it's not. Our then secretary of corrections did a pop-up visit and he found out that they weren't obeying the law that we had passed, a bill that I wrote, by the way. Um, And he wrote a directive that I couldn't have written better myself. One of the few times that I'll actually compliment corrections, but he wrote a directive that has since solved the problem. And so we are not hearing any problems coming out of our state that individuals have what they need. And so again, it was calling attention to it and holding people's feet to the fire. Since then, we've gone on to create other initiatives, our model pregnancy policy, Boober. Um, we ended the practice of placing pregnant, and I can't believe I, that people are going to say, we did that? Yeah. We placed pregnant and post-pregnant individuals into restrictive housing or solitary confinement. That was our practice. And we, I wrote that bill. And we got that law passed and we became the first state in the country to abolish that practice Um, because that was always their go-to. It was their misogynistic, long-held ideologies about we need to do this for the protection of pregnant, incarcerated individuals. And that's just not true. Nowhere in the history of Maryland's prisons has there ever been a pregnant individual harmed by another individual. Never. Wow. And so in the hearing, I literally was like shenanigans because, you know, I wanted to say something different, but I couldn't. And I said that. And I said, women do the exact opposite. When someone is pregnant there, do you need anything? Can mm-hmm. I fix you something to eat? Would you like a cup of coffee? Would you like a cup of tea? We create that community. And in fact, the one time I saw 
an episode of violence was a um, a fight in the dining hall. And it was girlfriend on girlfriend drama, trays are flying, chairs are flipping, tables are going. But there was a pregnant individual. And before the officers even got into the dining room, a sea of other incarcerated individuals were between the fight, the pregnant individual, and they got her out. Wow, That's yeah. what women do. We don't hurt pregnant individuals. We don't. And so we beat that back. And so now it's a question of how do we really develop best practices for our incarcerated population to manage all of the reproductive lifespan needs that they have? And the one that no one's talking about currently, abortion and menopause. I have so many questions. <laughs> I have so many questions. Good, I'm so good. glad we're going to have another 20 minutes here to talk because I have so many questions. So the first, Fire first away. question, yeah. um, why were menstrual products not being provided? And if they were being provided, like what, what were they giving or how much does it cost? Like, tell us a little bit about the menstrual product marketplace of an incarcerated individual. So the state does provide some really crappy, like barely more absorbent than a panty liner. Mm -hmm. And again, they dole them out. And so you might get one month, you might get three, you one month, you might get six, you, you know, again, it is a hit or miss thing. And so if you need more, your only requirement and your only, I mean, your only course of action is to go to an officer and say, Hey, I need more products. And they'll say, stand by, I have to call supply. And then supply doesn't answer. They're involved in doing their job and you're forgotten. Meanwhile, you're standing there bleeding. I knew women who would call their families and say, don't come see me today. They would call their lawyers, the very people trying to get them out of prison and say, don't come see me today because you have to go up to visiting where you can take nothing with you. Now you've got this pad and a panty liner. Let's not even call it a pad. And at the end of your visit, you're strip searched. So now you have to pull everything down, your butt naked, spread your butt cheeks, cough the whole nine yards, and you've got this pad that's now been exposed to air. There's no way to sanitarily dispose of it. Now you're touching doorknobs and everything else, and you have to go back to your housing unit, or if you came from, say, school or a job assignment where you might have a pad stashed, you're now walking through the compound. And if you're a heavy bleeder, now you're risking bleeding through your clothes that you only have one laundry day to wash. And what women had to do to wash those clothes in a mop bucket, in a shower, which, by the way, pisses off everybody, um, or in your toilet. And then there's no way to dry them. And so that was the reality of, and it still is in a lot of states, that's what individuals have to do. And you get creative, you beg, you borrow, you navigate, you make homemade tampons and run the risk of toxic shock syndrome. And if you have money on your books, you can buy tampons on commissary. That'll be, you know, but again, you get like 10 tampons for eight bucks. For eight bucks, I could go to Walmart and get a box of 40, you know? Mm -hmm. So again, it's, they weaponized um, the menstrual cycles of women is really what I said in the hearings. And, you know, uh, I have a lot of assumption as to how it got to this place, right? Like men made this system and so they didn't consider women. And I always like to try to give men the benefit of the doubt, right? Like that they didn't know. But <laughs> what, 
you know, at this point they know, right? And so yes. what what can we do to move this forward? So you've passed a bill in Maryland as well as some other states have passed this similarly. Mm-hmm. What would you say is like the next big milestone for, and I'm still talking about menstruation right now, right. we're going to move into the other sections of life, but <laughs> what would be the next big for our listeners who are activists, who are gung-ho, you know, women's rights, we deserve this. What's the next step to getting women who are incarcerated access to menstrual products that they need? So there's, there's a lot of ways, um, that, that your listeners can get involved. Uh, Reproductive Justice Inside is the only organization of its kind in the country that focuses solely on the reproductive lifespan of incarcerated women and girls. So we are expanding nationwide to begin to take our policy to different states. So we can be, you know, very nimble in different states to make sure that the law is there, but also to make the departments of correction report out. Mm. Because I always say I can't fight what I can't see and I can't see what they won't show me. So reporting is a big thing. Um, and I don't believe anything that correction says anyway. So they're going to fudge their numbers, but holding them accountable and making them report out, show us your order numbers. And that's something that somebody can do. They can call their local jurisdiction and say, Hey, is this a problem? They're going to be lied to. They're going to be told no. But then they can also reach out to us and say, we need an RJI in, you know, Iowa. Every state has women incarcerated. Every state is ripe for an RJI. Wow. And all right. So now let's kind of go into the next phase. Um, But it's also kind of with menstruation. I want to talk about contraception. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't take birth control just to not get pregnant. We take birth control because we have PCOS. I take birth control because I get cysts on my ovaries. You know, like we have lots endometriosis. There's all these different reasons. A woman gets incarcerated. Let's say she was on birth control pills to, you know, help with these symptoms. Does she still get access to birth control in inside? It depends on the state. In Maryland, yes. If she were on birth control prior to incarceration, the state is mandated to continue her on um, whatever that birth control was. Okay, that's good. Um, but again, states vary, and therein yeah. lies the problem, which is why we're creating this incredible landscape map that looks at all of these very different things and then doing a deep dive, what are the state laws in each one of these states? And you know, is there a possibility for legislative reform, or let's shame the devil, you know, that sort of thing. Um, Because now more and more people are paying attention to that. I do believe that a lot of states do recognize that um, women are on birth control for a variety of reasons and will honor that. But I also think that in some of those states, they'll go the cheapest, most generic, most, hell, I wouldn't even put put it past them that they're giving people placebos. I'm just saying. Again, I don't ever want to give anybody the benefit of the doubt when it comes to repro health and are incarcerated, but I do think that there are states that do honor that. Yeah. But again, it's not a consistent across the board policy. Do you think there's a federal route here where we can kind of circumvent the state by state campaigning or is incarceration truly a state by state issue? It is. And because at the federal level, they only concern themselves with the Bureau of Prisons. And thereby, you know, states have their own autonomy to make their own laws. Where I think that an organization like ours is effective is kind of creating a best practices uh, manual around these things that is, you know, that has been compiled and has been vetted by leading experts, corrections officials, medical professionals, formerly incarcerated voices who know the barriers that we're facing and really kind of create what could be seen as a national best practices model. 
That'd be awesome. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, You obviously need to be on that board. Uh, (laughs) So let's talk about pregnancy, contraception, abortion, right? You just said that's an area we're not talking enough about. So kind of give us the lay of the land. What's happening when it comes to abortion and and women incarcerated? And and also please give us the like really basic version, because I think some people may not understand that women can be pregnant, not know it, get incarcerated, right? So there's lots of different circumstances. So just kind of walk us through that. Yeah. What we have found is that um, some women will find out upon their intake into a prison that they are in fact pregnant. They have engaged in unprotected sex three to five days prior to their incarceration. Lo and behold, they're pregnant. Mm -hmm. In states like Maryland, that is a safe state for abortion access. They have the absolute right to request an abortion. Okay. The um, the only caveat to that is that they have to pay for it, which is where they reach out to organizations like us. We connect them with our providers. We connect them with our abortion funds. And all an institution has to do is trans is transport them and then provide the aftercare medical care that they need. Um, the, the problem with that is that it's also subject to bias. While it is a law in Maryland, we had an individual in one of our counties who had requested an abortion. She was going to get um, the abortion. And the day that she was being transported, an officer who was putting her in the van said, so today's the day you're going to kill your baby. Um, Just that, that just set my hair on fire. I'll be real honest. Mm -hmm. But in States where it is now been illegal, Mm -hmm. women who are incarcerated are screwed. That's the, that's the short of it. Yeah, um, because you are, if you are incarcerated on and you've been convicted, you are basically property of that state. So you may not request an abortion. The problem that we have and that nobody talked about was if you are pretrial, if you have been accused of a crime but not convicted and you are on, say, a, a bond, you're out on bail. One of the first things it says is shall not leave the state. So now your right to go to another state to seek medical care is now being violated. Wow. So once again, the far reaching impact of Dobbs, the far reaching impact on individuals who it's just an accusation of a crime. Yeah. Cannot access the medical care that they want or that is right for them. And so their ability to do the if, when, and how to have a family has now been taken from them. Wow. <sighs> Un- yeah, unbelievable, uh, yeah. but also believable. It's insane, the world we live in right now. Let's say a woman decides to, uh, she wants to keep the baby, or maybe she's incarcerated when she's already, you know, mm-hmm. eight months pregnant, let's say. What is the situation of pregnant women in prison? So you were just describing how um, culturally it seems like, you know, the other prisoners are like a mindful of it seems to be like a culture of protection there. But how many women are pregnant and incarcerated right now? And what's typically the path of maternal health and check ins and then the birthing process kind of walk us through that? It is such a landmine of pitfalls because, again, every state does something different. Mm -hmm. And so there are some states that actually have birthing units where an incarcerated individual can, you know, go as she gets closer to her due date. There are some states that are exploring nurseries, which, again, there's a good and a bad to that. A nursery on a prison compound is uh, fraught with its own issues. Um, But most states, 
If they allow doulas, for instance, mm-hmm. you might get three touch points with a doula. Not enough. No. Um, and again, it gets to how are doulas paid? And so it always sort of comes down to that. I think that there are, there's sort of a growing acceptance of we want doulas, but who's going to pay for them? And so therefore it doesn't exist. So when it's we not considered of, a, the medical treatment required by the prison. They don't right. have any requirement to, for like pregnancy checks? Nope. And so that's one of the things that like when we wrote our model pregnancy policy uh, manual, that was one of the things that we said that the doula should be seen as an integral part of that, um, the pregnancy healthcare team. Mm. And because again, when a woman gives birth, she's alone. So there's no doula with her. The baby's father, if she's in a relationship with the baby's father is not there. The mother, the sister, the auntie, the best friend, the whatever. So you got an officer standing over your head. You got one standing this way. And you're giving birth alone. Wow. I love it. The doctor. You've got a doctor, you've got nurses, but you're by yourself. There's no one saying, here, can I give you ice chips, rubbing your back, all of the things that we know, you know, and just being there for support is not there. And then the baby is taken from you. And we still have some states that as soon as you give birth, you're shackled back to that bed, which we've abolished in several states, but- Wisconsin still does it. And so, again, we said this when we were passing our bill in Maryland. If a woman is in active labor and she can, I said this in a hearing, if she could jump off the table and make a run for the door, A, if I'm there, I'm going to hold the door open and go, run, sister, run. (laughs) But if your fat ass officers can't catch her, then they need a new job because they guarantee no woman in active labor is jumping off of any bed and making a run for it. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. The number you asked about the number. And again, that varies from state to state, California, by virtue of the fact that they have more women's prisons, their number would be higher than say a Maryland. Um, oh. And so there's, and they also don't report out because one of the things that we're working on is trying to get states to report out, not just on, pregnancies when somebody comes in, but how long they're actually incarcerated before they're released. And how are they released? Are they released with a continuity of care plan to a reproductive health care provider in the community that they're going to reside in? What were the birth outcomes? What were, you know, how many times were they requested? Did they request an abortion? Was there a miscarriage? Was there, you know, any of these things? And they don't, no state reports out on it. Wow. Are they required to? So they're not required to, so they don't. No. So now that's why we're making the ask. Because again, you can't fight what you can't see. Kimber, you're my woman because that is why and how I built this company, which was, you know, I wanted to work in women's health and I knew people weren't respecting it. And I was like, what, what's the problem? And I thought, the things that they were saying to me, I was like, you don't understand what femtech really is. Like, and mm-hmm. so what I'm going to do is provide you with the data because then it's, it's no longer because trying to convince investors that women in pain matters has not worked for centuries. Right. And so me telling them women are in pain, it's not going to move the needle. But if I could show them data on how big the market is, how profitable it is, the buying power of women, like all the things that I don't think should be moving the needle necessarily, we should be moving it on, you know, empath and values. Nevertheless, I see you doing very much similar stuff where it's like, you're like, I need, we need the data. And then we're going to throw it back in your face to show you how bad it is. Right. So I kind of do the same thing with like, 
throw it back in their faces like, hey, by the way, less than 1% of all healthcare funding went to women's health, right? So yeah, but that's how you make yep. action is when you point it out like that. Yep, and use their words against them. Um, you, what do you mean? You When we started looking at model pregnancy policies, it was because we passed a law that said every institution would have one. And then we worked with the University of Baltimore School of Applied Feminism and their students, and they did this incredible research project for us that found out that they did most of our institutions had none. So you're just dealing with it as it comes up like, oh, wow, we got a pregnant woman. We don't know what to do now. <gasps> no protocols. Exactly. Wow. Because again, prisons were not meant for women. You know, they were designed for men, except for the fact that we are the fastest growing segment of our prison population. And really? We, I didn't know that. And policies have not kept up with those trends. Wow. All right. So let's keep going. Babies born, okay. babies yep. taken away, like given to who? Or given well, back and, to, like what's happening? And therein there? is sort of like another problem because in what we're trying to advocate for is that upon confirmation of a positive pregnancy test, mm -hmm. then the individual would meet with a social worker. What is it that you want to do? You are, in fact, the person that is carrying this baby. Here are all of your options. You know, we can talk about abortion. We can talk about if you're going to have this baby, who's going to raise this baby? Is it going to go home to mom? Is it going to go home to dad? Is it going to go into child welfare? Have you arranged private adoption? And all of that counseling does not help. And so usually what happens is the baby is just sent with a relative. Um, unless they can't find a relative, then it goes into the child welfare or foster care system. Yeah. And then if you don't have physical custody of your child for 15 consecutive months, they can terminate your parental rights. And I've seen it where somebody did not have um, physical custody of their child for 17 and a half months and the state terminated their parental rights. Because they're incarcerated, they couldn't see their kid, and then the court... And decided. you can't raise that child. You're not... You don't have physical custody of that child. Yeah. Somebody wow. else does. Wow. Yep. What is the, like, situation with, um, like, breastfeeding? I know that was actually one of the first ways we got introduced through yep. boobers, um, you know, and I was like, well, yeah, breastfeeding incarcerated. What is that? And then the, the rabbit hole has gotten way deeper, obviously. <laughs> You're at 20 minute, 26 of this episode. Tell me about boobers. What is, how is the breastfeeding so, done? So boober came about because I was sitting in my office and August is national breastfeeding awareness month. And so I'm thinking, well, we should be promoting this breastfeeding. We know breast is best and da, da, da. And so then it popped into my little head, but wait a minute, women who are incarcerated don't get to breastfeed. What do they do? And I had a friend of mine who was nursing when she was arrested and they literally gave her like toilet paper and pads to put on her, um, on her nipples. And so I thought, no, 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 we got to do a breastfeeding drive. Yeah. And so we did. So literally I put put like one social media post out on our Insta page. And immediately it was, can we share this with our mommy group? And then by the end of that month, my office looked like breast pump depot. I had so many breast pumps and accessories and everything else that you could need in my office. But then it occurred to me that we have one state prison in Maryland. And so it's in the middle of our state. But if someone's three and a half hours away in any direction, and you've got grandma raising the baby or auntie who may not have a car, who's not going to drive three and a half hours to pick up breast milk. I thought, how do we do this? In my office, and this is a hand to God, true story. Mm -hmm. I said, we need milk delivery. We need a 
Boober and everybody cracked up. And so that's how Boober was born. Then that's how we got into the Johns Hopkins Social Innovation Lab, because, again, it was a way of going to an institution and saying you don't have a dedicated space for I don't care if it's only one woman a year. If she wants to pump and dump, great. We need to give her all of the tools that she needs. If she wants to express her breast milk, then we need a freezer that she can store this breast milk in. And then we wanted to be able to train formerly incarcerated individuals to be sort of like those breast milk doulas to go pick up the breast milk at an institution, transfer it, take it to the caregiver and train them on how to store it and how to give it to the infant and all of that. And some states do encourage the pump and dump. Some will also um, allow breast feeding or uh, breast storage, breast milk storage. But the majority of them are just sort of like, yeah, no, that's not something that we do. Yeah, because I can, I mean, it's quote unquote hard for businesses to even accommodate a breastfeeding woman because she needs a sink and sanitary space, privacy, a fridge, uh, a freezer, right? So now I'm trying to think about incarcerated. And we just had a discussion about how you said they have to wash their bloodied pants in the toilet, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I can't even. How do you sanitize breast pumps? you know, all of this stuff. And so they didn't even want, they didn't even want her to have the equipment in her cell. And it was, wait a minute. Well, she could pump um, on during count time when there's no movement. I'm sorry. Do you not know how a woman's body works? I can't say I can only breast pump at seven and at three and then at seven and 11. That's not how the body works. And so then it became, well, you know, we just can't accommodate. Yes. Yes, you can. Like, Again, somebody who is expressing their breast milk specifically, whether it's to pump or dump or whether it's to give to their infant, they're not going to weaponize that machine. They need that machine. They're committed to the expressing their breast milk. And so, again, we just have to continue to beat back all the stupid arguments. And that's what it really comes down to. That was one of the biggest things that came out for me in the overturning of Roe v. Wade and these new laws that are coming out is that there's a basic lack of understanding of how our reproductive organs work. Um, yes. You know, some of the laws coming out about like, you know, it's it's, you know, alive at, for, at in, uh, you know, um Oh my God. Now I want to say incarceration. That's not At conception. <laughs> conception. Thank you. I'm like car- incarceration. That's not what I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> um, you know, like at the time of that is life. And it's just like, wow, we have such a lack of understanding of a life. It's just right. rough. This is rough. Um, all right, let's keep going down this like life journey of a woman. So she has a baby, let's say it's with their sister. She chooses whether or not to breastfeed. Okay. But let's say she's having some issues with pelvic floor uh, issues like urinary incontinence or pelvic organ prolapse or postpartum depression, you know, um, in the post, you know, delivery year, that's where we see a lot of deaths actually for maternal mortality. What's it like while incarcerated? Her baby's been taken. She may or not be allowed to breastfeed. What what other support is, if any, is there for her? I'm trying not to laugh. Um, because it's really sadly not existent there. Again, I go back to other people that are around her, um, particularly people that have had children may recognize some of the warning signs, but there's no real care. And that postpartum period, like we've written into our bills, postpartum is 12 weeks post um, pregnancy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but there's no mental health. First of all, we don't have mental health of any kind really in our prisons anyway. So there's no one doing those mental health checkups. Mm -hmm. There's no one, you know, she's going back and having routine follow-ups after delivery, but no one's talking about pelvic floor issues and none of that. And so unless she presents with a condition that could then be diagnosed, again, it's, it's just, it's hit or miss. There's no real comprehensive um, pregnancy healthcare. And what I think the people that sort of like are in control that I battle on a regular basis don't understand is that 95% of the people that we incarcerate come home. And so what we don't do with them, what we don't do for them, what we don't do is what's coming back in terms of increased healthcare costs when that individual does come home. And so Again, it's trying to shift that narrative. Like if we would invest on the front end, if we could do better while we had somebody and do all the appropriate tests, all of the appropriate diagnosis, then the healthcare cost when that individual comes home is going to be much better. Maternal health outcomes are better. Community is better. But again, they just see a big fiscal note and they don't think about the back end. Do you know if what percentage of people who have less left the system are on uh, Medicaid or Medicare? The majority. In fact, by virtue of your incarceration, right. you are eligible for Medicaid. Wow. Yeah. So just to put your point even further home, it, at the end of the day, the government's still paying for it, but they're paying a hell of a lot more for your hysterectomy than they would have if they just bought you freaking tampons to yep. wear, to have. Very good point. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. I'm a and good listener, huh? Exactly. It's almost like if they heard a story about this, they might actually understand. And if they have heard the story and haven't done anything, what does it really mean about their intentions or motivations, you know? Exactly. And how it's do they really view? Story, <laughs> you <yep>. know? <laughs> how do they view this population? Yeah. Not well. Wow. Um, let's talk about menopause. So you said okay. that is one of the underappreciated areas. Um, we, even in the mainstream, you know, outside of prison, we are still figuring out menopause. Super Bowl had a commercial actually this year about menopause, which I was like, well, lost my mind over a little bit. What is it like menopause incarcerated? So our prison population is also aging. And so with that comes women who have been inside for a long period of time who may not have had someone tell them about menopause. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden you wake up, you're sweating at night, you've got all the, the hot flashes, the whole nine yards, and no one's talking to you about it because there's no health training. There's no health information. And so we have the ability to, you know, hormones are always available. You know, again, we have the ability to give every woman who's in menopause a freaking fan, like simple things, access to ice. There are simple things that can be done that can at least help an individual. And it, this goes to dignity and humanity, to be perfectly honest, to self-manage those symptoms, to have medical care if they if uh, if hormones are what's going to be in her best interest, to have them prescribed to her, to get a fan. It's not a big freaking lift. And yet- even access to ice. You know, I know that ice is a is a big deal in some prisons. You might get one little cup of ice. How's that going to help someone with hot flashes at two in the morning? Yeah, It's not. And so, again, it's just trying to balance the this is good policy with also this is dignity. Mm -hmm. You know, how we treat people is how people respond. 
Yeah. It sounds to me that literally like brick by brick, every part of the prison system is wrong for females. Um, And it sounds like you're on, you know, the path that is set before us, which is okay. Try to legislate this away or fix it. Right. But it almost sounds like we need to start from scratch uh, (laughs) uh, with the incarcerated system. Like how do you, how do you get by day to day knowing that like what you want to do is just blow up the whole program and like start it, start it over or just eliminate it. But you're on this path that, you know, is set before you, which is bill by bill, state by state. We have a lot of listeners who are also fighting for women's health. So how do you every day wake up and and keep fighting the system that you uh, obviously have great, uh, anger with <laughs> remorse, you know, where you're like, why? Cause it's just, it's inhumane. So tell us, how do you get by day to day doing this? By I, I think because I wake up every day and I think of the things that we've accomplished. I think of the voices that have now kind of said, Oh damn, I never thought about that. How can I get involved? Um, I think that again, I live by this philosophy of first you edit, educate, then you legislate and then you litigate. And I always have litigation in my back pocket. Right. But um, again, I, I, I do think that there are more and more people who've been reaching out to RJI and to me to talk about these varying issues because now all of a sudden something has happened. Mm-hmm. They know somebody that's gone to prison or there's been an egregious story that's been written in the paper. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, this is happening. How do we address this? And so I think that more and more advocates, more and more interested individuals, not even just advocates, just people who have an interest in humanity and in doing right and are concerned with all of these different issues are starting to get involved. And I really do think that um, when we started talking about with Dobbs, I think people were starting to say, there's going to be huge communities that are going to be very negatively impacted by that. And then here comes Kim with her, let's not forget the incarcerated people. And all of a sudden people are like, Oh, holy crap. And then it opens the doorway for larger conversations about all of the other reproductive lifespan issues that our incarcerated yeah. population face. Yeah. Do you, do you know any chance like the uh, proportion of people who are incarcerated and convicted and incarcerated versus like out on bail? Because that um, you, that was such a powerful example you gave, which is like, you're not convicted yet. You're just accused, but you're out on bail, but you can't leave the state. Like, do you have any a sense of how many people that means, you know? Um, it is it is more people that are out on bail. Yeah. Okay. Um, because again, we still have, sadly, we have not done a good job on bail reform. But it also applies too to people who may be released back to their community and they're on home monitoring. Uh-huh. And so, again, you can't leave the state. You can't get permission to leave the state. And the problem is, even if you were in a state where abortion is still a protected right, are they really going to allow you to say, come to a safe state like Maryland? No. Um, and so therein lies a whole other population that can't get the medical care that they want or that they need. And because technically when you're on home monitoring, you are still under the care, custody and control of a um, corrections um, agency. Wow. Kimberly, this is super informative. It's exactly what I thought it would be, which was made me angry, made me sad, but also activated to do something. So what is your uh, final call to action for our listeners who, you know, if they're listening to the end here, they're interested, they want to do something. So what should they do? 
reach out to me, Kimberly at reproductivejusticeinside.org. Um, put us in, in contact with people that are on your state that are working on this. Donate to us so we can come to your state because we have a model that is ready to just roll into states where I don't even care if we're welcome because honestly, I have no problem kicking indoors, but reach out to us, engage us, support us, donate to us, keep asking questions and get involved. That's really the big issue. It is about dignity and it is about humanity and it is about looking out for other women who don't have a voice. Thank you, Kimberly. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Brittany. This has been amazing. Thank you for listening to my interview with Kimberly Haven. Learn more about reproductive justice inside and get involved with their mission by emailing Kim directly at Kimberly. K-I-M-B-E-R-L-Y at ReproductiveJusticeInside.org. Okay, Fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at FemHealthInsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 Femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.